This morning's scripture reading comes from Matthew 23, verses 1 through 22. It can be found starting on page 828 in the Red Bible under your seat. Matthew 23, 1 through 22. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do, for they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, And they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ." The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, For you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing, but if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that made the gold sacred. And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar, swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple, swears by it, and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven, swears by the throne of God, and by him who sits upon it. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, my name is Steve, and uh, it's good to be with you this morning. We're uh, we're making our way through of, of Matthew, and so I want to say welcome to, to you, if you're new here this morning especially, welcome to you, and uh, we invite you to, to join with us and looking at this uh, very challenging section of, uh, of the Gospel of Matthew. Course of our almost two-year series on the Gospel of Matthew, Mike has been challenging us to think about what it means to, to follow Jesus uh, in a secular age. And the study, I think, has been uh, encouraging, and we've been kind of, particularly in our elders' meetings, kind of tracking with some of the, the fruit that we're seeing in the lives of, uh, of people as a, as a result of, of this study. I'm gonna, and I think it's a little bit hard to, over the course of a long study, to, to its impact. And so you kind of need to stop and think about it. Often, Formation is not the case of a, a kind of a dramatic, you know, series of dramatic aha moments. It's, it's more of kind of incremental shifts in, in our thinking and incremental shifts in, in our way of life. At other times, spiritual formation um, is, is not about shifting at all, but it's about holding fast to ancient paths and seeing them more clearly as the culture sort of races off on shiny new expressways. Sometimes, for those who have been walking with the Lord for for many years, 
Spiritual formation is not really even about dramatic changes in their understanding of the life of faith or dramatic changes in their obedience, so much as it is about seeing the, the hues and colors of their discipleship gradually deepen like the colors of a, of a sugar maple in the autumn. Often, unbeknownst to this kind of disciple, their lives become radiant. Perhaps you can think of one or two or a handful or a few people like that here at Trinity. I certainly can. So, so we've, you know, I, and I know if you're new to Christianity and, and maybe you haven't been coming here very long and you hear us talking about, you know, wanting to be disciples, even that language I know can sound a little weird, you know, like, are you looking for somebody with a big beard here, and he's the yogi, and you're going to, you know, you're disciples of that guy, and it's weirder than that. I mean, we're disciples of a Galilean Jew who lived 2,000 years ago. That's what we're saying, and we know it's weird, and when we're in public settings, you know, we're not saying, we're not necessarily introducing ourselves as disciples, because that sounds weird. But as we've listened to, to Matthew, we're holding to that. And I guess if that same seems weird, then all we can say is what Jesus says to one of his early disciples in the first chapter of John, Nathaniel, when he expressed skepticism. And Jesus said, come and see. Come and see. So as we've listened to Matthew narrate the story of Jesus, for those of us who are trying to be disciples, I hope at times you felt kind of delighted and fascinated Comforted, confirmed in your discipleship. But I also hope there have been times when you've been irritated, kind of agitated, bewildered, challenged, maybe even a bit threatened in your discipleship. We thought about Jesus from within our secular age. It's important, I think maybe even vital, that we find Jesus sometimes disagreeable. One reason many people find belief in God so disagreeable in our secular age is that he seems to disagree with them so much. But I suppose if you think about it, a God whom you always found or always find agreeable wouldn't be much of a God. In fact, he'd be pretty much just like you. He would basically be you. Like Mike showed us a number of images last, last week in which he depicted various attempts to reimagine Jesus. To the Buddhists, Jesus becomes a Buddhist Jesus. To the Hindu, he becomes a Hindu Jesus. To the rebel, Jesus looks like the rebel, Che Guevara. You might call this the wishing well Jesus. Look at well and find of your wishes. And surprise, more often than not, he looks kind of like you, or at least the best imaginable you, staring right back up at, the, uh, up at you from the well. But the Jesus of Matthew's gospel not only takes other characters in the gospel by surprise, takes other characters in the story off guard. He takes us off guard. He keeps, keeps us on our heels. He challenges us. He bewilders us. And this uncanny ability of Jesus to, to get in our heads may be one of the reasons why many people, even people who have long since cast aside belief in Jesus, cast aside belief in God, still feel haunted by him. In our secular age, according to the philosopher Charles Taylor, many people find it implausible to believe in God or even Jesus, but they still feel haunted by him. They don't believe in Jesus, but they miss him. Or as you know, many, many deconversion stories floating around out there in one uh, one musician, David Bazan, he wrote a song, and his, he recently de deconverted, and, it, and here's how his song goes. He says, I might as well admit it as though I had a choice. The crew have killed the captain. 
but they still could hear his voice. A shadow on the water, a whisper on the wind, on long, long walks with my daughter who is lately full of questions about you. What's he saying? Full of questions about you. Haunted by this God he no longer believes in. But sometimes as Christians, we're haunted as well. After spending a couple of years in Matthew, it's easy to see why, why Matthew has been, you know, see how Matthew has been kind of throwing stones at the face of our wishing well Jesus. He's worrying us that our, our fondly cherished images of Jesus might not be who Jesus actually is after all. This Jesus we're trying to follow might not be the real Jesus. This far into Matthew, it's becoming increasingly clear that the, the Jesus we meet in Matthew is not, he's not an American Jesus. He's not a therapeutic Jesus. He's not a Caleb Jesus, Republican Jesus, a social justice Jesus, a rugged individualist Jesus, an environmentalist Jesus. He's not a Buddhist Jesus, a Hindu Jesus, a Cuban Jesus. He's not even white. disturbing for some of us. He's not even very nice in many places. <laughs> Certainly that's the case in this passage. But precisely when we feel off balance, made to feel off balance by Jesus, discombobulated by Jesus, perhaps it's then that our discipleship is most likely either to become significantly less authentic or significantly more authentic. It's when we look away from, from our face, staring back at us from the fishing well, and come face to face with Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew, that we turn away from our Jesus-haunted lives to live the joy-filled life of following the way of a Galilean Jew. Perhaps it's in this text that we consider this morning that we become most aware that this business of following Jesus is perhaps rather different than what we imagine. And particularly for those of us who have gotten used to the idea that this idea of Jesus who came offering grace to take the place of legalistic, the legalistic religion of the Old Testament. It's important that we hear Jesus well. Very, very kind of common idea. One, the pastor of the largest megachurch in America recently said, we, you know, Jesus came to unhitch us from Old Testament religion. But what Jesus, I think, is saying here is as his disciples, he is calling us to do and keep the Torah. To do and keep the Torah. I've used that ancient word, that ancient language to, to kind of remind us that we need to get, get into his head the way he's gotten into our head so that we can be his followers. The first thing that we see in the text is that disciples don't simply do Torah, they keep it. One of the, the challenges to seeing Jesus as he really is is to see him as he really was. A person deeply engaged, not with secular people of the sort that we rub shoulders with day in and day out, of the sort of people that, at least in part, we are. But he interacted day by day with deeply religious people, profoundly serious about protecting the holiness of God's name. Acutely aware as the Pharisees and the scribes were, of danger of idolatry that had plagued Israel almost from, from the beginning. And as a result, they were um, seriously meticulous in their efforts to represent and to promote the purity of Israel. Israel sort of surrounded by paganism, 
throughout its history, constantly defending itself from the onslaught of pagan religion, they were looking to find ways toward fidelity, toward faithfulness. And so the first part of our passage has Jesus talking about the scribes and the Pharisees to his disciples, and then he turns and talks to the scribes and Pharisees directly in the presence of his disciples. And so when he speaks to them, he speaks to them directly in a series of seven woes. Now that's a that's an unfamiliar word, but word, but it's it's a it's a word that kind of is loaded with the prospect of imminent judgment. Well, see, to understand the significance of what Jesus says here in the first part of the text, it's important to understand who these guardians of the Torah were and what they were trying to do. He speaks to them, as often in Matthew, as, a, as, a, as two groups, scribes and Pharisees. Now, the scribes were kind of the, the professional pen and paper people. These were the people of ink and papyrus. If you needed a marriage drawn up or a property agreement, you went to a scribe. But more importantly, they were the people that were responsible for transcribing the Torah. In a context in which most people are, were, were illiterate, most people couldn't read or write, you needed a professional class like, like these folks, like the scribes. But these scribes um, responsible as they were for, for copying the law, for producing copies of the law, they were the ones who were also responsible, together with the Pharisees, in the context of the synagogue, for reading it. It wasn't like, you know, the average Jewish household had, you know, a Bible. People weren't getting up in the morning for quiet times. Most Jewish homes didn't have a single written document anywhere in the home, much less a whole copy of the Torah. So if they were going to understand Torah, know Torah, obey Torah, they were going to have to hear it being read. And the people responsible for having it read and for instructing people in the way of Torah were the scribes, together with the Pharisees. In other words, even to know what was in the Torah, the word that would have been used for the first five books of the Old Testament— they were dependent on the scribes and the Pharisees. And I think that's what Jesus means when, they, when he says, they sit on the seat of Moses. Now, I think that was an actual chair. If you go Google seat of Moses and hit the images tab, and you'll see popping up are these pictures of actual sort of stone seats. And I think he's probably talking about a place where they kept the synagogue scrolls. So these are the people who sat there and read the Torah. So the Pharisee says, do whatever they say. When Jesus says, do whatever they say, he's not saying he agrees with their teaching. He's not saying that he, understand, he, he agrees with the way that the Pharisees understand and practice the Torah. Everything in the rest of the chapter, and indeed in the whole and the whole book of Matthew indicates fundamental disagreement between Jesus and the Pharisees over the question of what it means to, to obey Torah. And so when Jesus calls them hypocrites, he doesn't mean that they teach one thing and do something else. This kind of gives you, in some of the translations of verse 3, you kind of get that impression. They don't practice what they preach, is how it's often translated. But literally it says that they say one thing, but they do something else. So what they say as they're sitting in the seat of Moses is simply what they read. What they speak is, is what's right there in the Torah. They say that, but they do something else altogether different. They don't practice what they're reading, I think is Jesus' meaning. The problem that Jesus has with the Pharisees is not that they do not practice what they preach, his problem is that they do. They do exactly what they teach. They do exactly what they preach. And they not only do and exactly what they teach and preach, they're also leading others to do what they teach and preach. So much so that they would even go to other parts of the diaspora 
we learn a little bit later, to Jews living outside of Palestine. They would travel over dangerous roads and sail the high seas in order to, to go to these Jews to persuade them to adopt this Pharisaic way of life, this Pharisaic way of, of keeping the Torah. That's a problem from Jesus' perspective. What they teach is seriously misguided. Still, if disciples were going to know what was in the Torah, they were going to have to hear it read by the scribes and Pharisees. It wouldn't be because they were reading it for themselves. So the point of verse 3 is that the people through whom, the very ones through whom the people generally would have access to the Torah, they don't do the Torah. They don't keep the Torah. What Jesus is saying, and by contrast, is that disciples, everything that the disciples hear being read from the word of God, they do it. They keep it. I suspect the framing of the response in that twofold way, they do and keep it, sounds a little bit weird, but I think both of those words are, are, are significant. He's telling his disciples to do the Torah, but don't just do it. Keep it. I think maybe he means a couple of things by this. He means keep the Torah as it was given. In other words, the Pharisees has added all this interpretive tradition, this oral tradition, their, their sort of way of life that they kind of developed. They, they thought out of Torah, but it was in addition to Torah. Jesus says, just keep to the Torah. I think that's what Jesus is meaning to the rich young man a couple of chapters, a few chapters earlier. He says, what good thing must I do? And Jesus says, keep the commandments. Keep them just as it's written, as they were given. But I think something else. Keep Torah as it was intended. Don't derive an ethic from Torah that isn't shaped by the ethos of Torah. Don't determine practice from Torah without thinking about the purpose of Torah. In other words, it's not just a matter of doing the commandments, but understanding how the commandments fit within a larger story. And that's, that's largely what it means for us to keep the Torah as well, to see the commandments in relation to the, to the story that the Torah itself is telling about God and his relationship with his people. But first and foremost, Jesus' instructions to his disciples is very simple. Do whatever they say. Whatever you hear from the, being read in the scriptures, do that. That's what a disciple is. One of the things that we're aiming for, praying for, planning for here at Trinity is the emergence of a, of a disciple-making culture. We want to be disciples and make disciples. And one of the barriers to being a disciple who makes a disciple is that we feel unqualified. My wife likes to say, um, I teach a seminary, my wife likes to say that I have a PhD in Jesus. And, <laughs> and, and, that's, and that's true. But there, the reality is there's a lot of people who have PhDs in Jesus who aren't followers of Jesus. A disciple is not someone who has a PhD in Jesus. A disciple is simply someone who, however much they understand of what they hear from the Scriptures, they're committed to do it. Whatever it takes, whatever it costs, whatever I hear, I'm going to do. Someone who makes disciples is simply someone who comes alongside of others and encourages them to do the same thing. It's not this being a disciple and being... And, and making disciples is not a complicated thing. Whatever you hear, do and keep. Do and keep. Secondly, disciples don't see Torah as a massive burden to be shouldered, but as a grace to live by. It's a massive burden to, to be shouldered, but as a grace to live by. The verse uh, provide confirmation that in telling his disciples to do what the scribes and the Pharisees say, he 
He's not telling them to follow their teaching, but to do and keep the Torah, which they were responsible for reading. In their teaching, what do they do? They bind up heavy burdens, and they lay them on the backs of people. In other words, they... They bind up heavy burdens by adding so much to the law from their traditions and from their intricate, circuitous, sometimes ingenious, but ever-expanding interpretations and inferences about what obedience should look like, that it's no longer, like keeping Torah, doing Torah, is no longer the straightforward task of hearing and doing. But it feels like a massive load to be carried. In the role as teachers of the Torah, they were not helping people to obey. They were making it hard to obey. They're like the donkey drivers. I mean, many years we lived as as missionaries in, in Ethiopia, and we would often see donkeys just carrying these massive, massive loads. I mean, just too much to carry. If it wasn't a good donkey driver, wouldn't properly situate the load, and donkeys would just kind of collapse under the, under the burden of staggering loads piled up on people. Or, or maybe the men in this, this next photo, if you'll click the, the clicker. Look at the men in the, in the back. Maybe they've helped these women with, you know, put these massive loads on their, <laughs> on their back. Um but have done nothing to help them. That's what Jesus is saying these Pharisees are like. They haven't lifted a finger to help people in the carrying of these massive loads that they have bound up and have placed on their, on their shoulders. Now, Jesus isn't saying that the law has no requirements, that the Torah has no commands, but it's important to think about how those requirements work. Back in the... If you remember back in Matthew 19, some Pharisees come to Jesus with a question about the legal requirements imposed by Deuteronomy 24. It was a passage in Deuteronomy regarding divorce. And the Pharisees look at the divorce regulation, and looking at the divorce regulation, they say, we want to follow this commandment. We don't want to violate the requirements of what Moses is saying. So Moses speaks about a man who finds a thing of indecency in his wife. And if he finds a thing of indecency, then he is told that he can give her a, a, certificate, a certificate of divorce. And so the Pharisees come to Jesus with the question, and say, oh, how do you interpret this, this phrase, thing of indecency? Now, we know that the Torah is the word of God, and God doesn't waste his words. So if he only meant indecency, he would have just said indecency. But instead, he says thing of indecency. And so we think we ought to interpret those two words separately. Yes, indecency, that's a proper grounds, but also thing. And so they come with Jesus. Does that word thing mean anything? Can we put our wives away for any reason at all? That is, can we give them a certificate of divorce if they do anything that we don't like? And Pharisees had different, you know, the whole legal debate about what thing means. What's the definition of is? This kind of thing. (laughs) And what about certificate? We know the Pharisees debated this. What constitutes a valid certificate of divorce? Who has to certify it? What does the wording have to be? It needs to go on the certificate. When it says give a certificate of divorce, what does give mean? Does it have to be in person? Can you send it with somebody? Does it have to be given to her from the rabbi? What does it mean? What does give mean? And so they devised a whole series of regulations not found in the Torah, but about what it means to precisely and in detailed way keep the, keep the commandments found there in Deuteronomy 24. But in all this very close and sometimes ingenious, even, frankly, impressive legal reasoning, the simple, straightforward statement of the divine will 
of God's intention concerning marriage was suffocating. Instead of nurturing obedience, they'd put a pillow over the face of obedience. The simple intent of God was that a man and a woman should hold fast to one another, that they should hold on to one another, come what may, that they should see themselves in a holy covenantal bond formed by God himself to live with one another in the closest possible intimacy. That's the divine will. That's God's gift. That's his grace. That's God's intention, his desire, his will. And so the requirement comes out of the gift. And the requirement is simply this. If God has given you the gift of this of this bond, don't break it. Don't break it. Well, there were some disciples listening to and immediately they responded, Whoa, Jesus, that seems that seems way harder than the we like the Pharisees approach better. At least you know, you know, like you got a way out. Jesus says, you're thinking of this all wrong. If, if God gives you marriage, he's given you a gift, a grace. And if he gives you singleness, as he gives all of us singleness for at least a season, he's given you a different kind of gift, a different kind of grace. And each gift has its own kind of requirements that come out of that gift. So let me give you an example. Imagine a father who buys his daughter a car, beautiful brand new car. He takes, it, takes her out to the driveway to give it to her for her birthday. And he says it to her, now, now don't forget, you got to keep the oil changed, and you, know, you have to, you know, when you gasket, don't, you have to fill it gas. And she listens to this, and he says, well, you know, just put it on the credit card we've given you, and you can use that to pay for your gas and your, and your oil changes until until you're out of school. And the daughter looks at him and says, you're so impossible. Throws the keys at his feet and storms back into the house. Who can live under these constraints? Do you think she feels any freer tied down to the house? He's given her this gift and there's certain things that go along, you know, that, that sort of come out of that gift. And Jesus effectively says, if keeping... The Torah feels burdensome, you're doing it wrong. If discipleship to Jesus feels overwhelming, you're doing it wrong. If it feels restrictive and binding, exactly how free does the the chaos of a life of broken relationships and your pursuit of happiness feel? You see what Jesus is saying? For disciples, the Torah, I mean, it may look like this from the outside. And often Christians, you know, you know people from the outside look at Christians and all these rules that you're, you're having to follow. But from inside, the Torah, the yoke of, of Jesus, it doesn't feel like that. It doesn't feel like a massive burden to be shouldered. It feels like a life-giving, liberating gift. Doesn't feel constraining. As Jesus says, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. If obedience feels exhausting, it's not even obedience. Jesus goes on to say, what it is, is religious eye candy. It's religious eye candy. And that's the third point that Jesus is making here. Disciples don't do Torah to be seen by people but to be a certain kind of people. I don't do Torah to be seen by people, but to be a certain kind of people. So, verses 5 to 7 are depicting the so-called obedience of the religious. How many of you have heard of smart goals? Heard of smart goals? You know what a smart goal is? You know, it's kind of business language. They're specific, measurable, achievable. Um, what's the what's they are? The realistic Time constrained. Well, the Pharisees, they brought kind of smart goals to the commandments. It was smart. They wanted smart commandments, specific, 
measurable, achievable, the sort of thing that's sort of observable. They wanted smart laws. So they wanted clear ways of knowing and ensuring that they had obeyed. Doubtless, many of them had genuine desires to ensure that Israel never again fell into a rebellion, fell into idolatry. So they wanted to make sure. So as one scholar put it, uh, the Pharisees cared about detail. They cared about precision. They wanted to get it right. And he goes on to say, you know, if I'd lived then, I think I you know, would have liked the Pharisees because you know, they, they, they were serious about getting it right. The problem, of course, is that obedience that focuses on what can be seen easily becomes obedience in order to be seen. It might start as obedience that you can see, but it soon becomes obedience done so that others can see it. You know, it's the same problem that attends many, uh, many of those who are disciples of Jesus early in their discipleship, who measure their discipleship by you know, how many chapters of the Bible they've read that day, how long their prayer, prayer times have been, how, how often they've shared their faith, how many Bible verses they've, they've memorized. And as they're measuring their discipleship in those terms, pretty soon they're telling other people how many Bible chapters they've, how many chapters of the Bible they've read and how long they've prayed and how, how many Bible verses they've, uh, they've memorized. Or telling about the impact of their ministries or the size of, size of their churches and all, you know, on and on. These kind of observable, measurable things. But Jesus is pointing to another way. You see, the gift of the Torah had never been simply about observable behavior, measurable conduct. Instead, it had been about enabling God's people, enabling us, to be a certain kind of people. A people, and he gives us some indications of what kind of people Torah intended us to be. He talks about these phylacteries of the Pharisees. What's the, where does that come from? The, you know, Deuteronomy 6, 8, God said to Israel through Moses, bind up Torah and, uh, and strap it to your forehead and put it on your arm. Well, they were known as literalists, and so they they devised these leather pouches, and the bigger the better. I mean, bigger because, you know, you wanted to get more Torah tucked in, but also bigger because everybody would know that you're serious about being a person of Torah. But, of course, that was never really the point. The bigger they they made them, you know, other people certainly would recognize them as those trying to obey the Torah, but Moses' concern was not that the people wear big leather pouches, but that they bring the Torah into their lives. It was a people who do Torah for the love of Torah. That's why he wanted them to constantly remember. He wanted them to treasure the Torah. But he goes on and talks about these, these fringes. They make their fringes long. What was the fringe? Jesus wore one. We see that, we've seen that twice in the Gospel of Matthew. People come and touch his tassel in order to be healed. But the tassel was a way, a symbol of Israel's holiness. It was the only thing Israelite men were allowed to wear that had mixed cloth. Because the mixture of cloth was part of the domain of the holy. It's the only thing that could be mixed in cloth. That sounds a little bit weird, but the symbolism is clear. God wanted them to have a reminder of his call on their lives to be a holy people, a holy nation. The point was not simply to represent holiness, but to be holy. Something similar, Jesus is making something similar in the third woe in verses 16 to 22. And it's important to see in this arcane debate about, you know, first century oaths. I swear by whatever. A lot of debate going on in the first century about what these oaths meant and when they were appropriate and when they weren't appropriate. But they ultimately go back to the third commandment. The third commandment, was that you shall not take the name of the Lord in vain. Don't take the name of the Lord in vain. Don't profane 
the name of the Lord. Uh, that is, keep it holy. And so the underlying assumption of the Pharisees was that some oaths jeopardized the holiness of God's name, and some oaths didn't. So, how do you know which was which? How do you know which oaths implicated the divine name and which didn't? And why was that important in the first place? Well, if an oath implicated God's name, if God's name was somehow attached to it, then it was a binding oath. Now, the Pharisees, we shouldn't misunder, you know, sort of uh, misunderstand the Pharisees. They didn't think it was, it was um, possible to straight up lie to a person, you know, promise to do something for them that you had no intention of doing. That wasn't the Pharisees. But what if you made a promise and later you regretted that promise? Or wish you hadn't made that promise for some reason? Now, that could happen for, for, for a variety of reasons. Um, but the Pharisees, what it made, uh, the Pharisees wanted to be precise about when a promise could be broken. Sometimes a promise that needed to be broken. We saw an instance of that back in chapter 15. When someone had promised to give something to the temple, and they had promised in the name of God, and so the Pharisee says, no, even if your parents would be helped, your, your elderly parents needed that money, even though the fifth commandment says, honor your parents, you are requiring them to dishonor their parents in order to keep the third commandment to honor the name of God. But God's one, his law is one, and you're pitting one part of God's law against the other. So for them, the crucial question was whether or not the person had implicated God's holy name in his promise. If they had, the promise had to be kept, even if, it, even if the promise had been made rashly and would harm another person if they kept it. Still, it didn't matter. you got to keep it. God's name's at stake. But if they hadn't made a promise, the reverse was also true. The promise could be broken, and there was no harm done to God's name. Even if breaking the promise would harm your neighbor. So both scenarios were in play. Now, but the Pharisees, they were focused on the question, well, when exactly is God's name implicated? Now, it would take a long time to explain why the Pharisees thought that a promise made on the inner sanctum of the temple was not implicating God's name, did not compromise God's name, and therefore was not binding. But an oath made by the gold on the outside of the temple was. Now, they had a careful legal reasoning for thinking of one oath as binding and the other as not. Same thing with oaths made by heaven or the throne of God or uh, an oath made by the altar. No problem. doesn't pose a threat to the name of God if you swear by the altar. But if you swear by the sacrifice on the altar, God's name's at stake. Now, how people were supposed to keep track of all this, I have no idea, but they were thinking about all of this. And it has to do with the way in which holiness was regarded as contagious. That is, the holiness of the animal, where does it come from? Does it come from the altar or from something else? So it went deep, deep, deep. They worked all this stuff out. They had a careful legal rationale for understanding why one, one kind of oath implicated God's name and another kind didn't. But Jesus sweeps all of the distinctions aside. What he says is, the holiness of God's name is always at stake. It's always at stake. It's at stake when you mention his name. It's at stake when you don't. It's at stake when you renege on a promise that you made to someone and minimize the harm it caused them. It's a stake when you promise your spouse you'd do something and then thoughtlessly forgot. It's a stake. Um, his name rests on every driver that sits next to you in traffic, every cashier, 
every waitress, every person you meet. His name is implicated in every link you click, every social media message you post, every email you write, literally every word you speak. See, the Torah, the Torah, was all about enabling that for there to be a people who hunger for the holy in the whole of life. That's what the Torah was meant to do. A people who orient their lives around service of others. It was not just that they wanted to see the holy brought into all of life. People of the Torah. They were people wanted to orient their lives around other people. See, the Pharisees were people who came to be respected for their rigor, for their seriousness about the law. And they came to expect to be recognized. So Jesus dwells on this point in particular because it goes to the heart of the Pharisaic approach to the Torah a rigorous approach to elaborating every detail had turned the focus on them. It turned the focus on their extreme moral effort. They wanted to be recognized for it. They were working hard. They lost sight of the two towering pillars right in the middle of the law. Love God, love people. Orient your lives around the other. The one who is the holy other and other people. And they built their lives on these two massive organizing principles. Their whole lives would have looked like serving others. Humbly serving God and humbly serving his people. See, the philosophers paradox is that those who pursue happiness never find it. A lot of people pursuing happiness, and they never find it. But the disciples' dilemma is that those who lose their life in service to others, they find it. And that goes right to the heart of Torah. You love your neighbor as yourself. And you make your whole life about enhancing your neighbor's life, about seeing to their well-being, about their best interests. The final thing, briefly, disciples don't seek devotees to themselves, but devotion to the one God. Disciples don't have acolytes. They don't want them. Pharisees, they'd go to any lengths to get them. Traveling over land and sea to get even a single convert. But disciples aren't like that. They don't want to do anything to be above anyone else. They don't want to be elevated above anyone else. They would never do anything that would put the focus on themselves, that cultivated devotion to themselves, because at the heart of the Torah is the conviction, the confession that there is one God. And devotion belongs only to one God. And who is this one God? Notice how this word one attaches to both the Father and the Messiah. It's this Christological, this Messiah-centric reformulation of the Shema, of the confession at the heart of Torah, that there's only one God. Soon enough, he will send his disciples over to land and sea, but not to make disciples of themselves, but to make disciples who bear the name of the one God and obey all that their Torah-loving teacher, the Messiah, teaches them. This business of being a disciple is not complicated. Disciples are those who simply do and keep the Torah as taught to us by Jesus. So Jesus urges his followers to listen and simply respond to what they hear. 
to everything they hear. That's what a disciple is. Someone who's committed whatever it is, I'm going to keep it. I'm going to obey it. I'm going to mold my life around it. I'm going to let the truths that I come to understand be explosively alive in my life. Does that describe you this morning? Are you a disciple? Are you responding to to Jesus' invitation to lay down the heavy burden of a performance-driven quest for the approval and praise of people and to take up his light and joyful and easy yoke and follow along behind him as he travels the path of service. As the worship band comes up, let's, uh, let's just take a moment in silence before the Lord and ask him what he would have us do to respond to him as his disciples. Father, we thank you for this text that, that, that challenges our notions of what it means to be followers of Jesus. We want to be followers. We pray that we would keep our eyes fixed on him. Pray that we would take up his way of keeping the Torah, his way of understanding the Torah, we would make our lives about other people. We would make our lives about the love of the law, just as he loved the law. And in making the Torah taught to us by the Messiah, central to how we think about our lives, we pray that we would find that these, these two massive pillars of the Torah, the love of God and the love of the people, the defining principles of our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.